0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, there was a reason I had uh, Chris do that update uh, because it's tying into um, the Church of Smyrna and some of the false teaching that is a complete opposite of what the Church of Smyrna is all about. Um, if you haven't been with us since we started the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to to get the update, the introduction to the book, and then chapter one. I'll probably say this many times, but again, the key to the book of Revelation is found in chapter one. John is on the island of Patmos, and the year is roughly 95, 96 AD. If you look at verse 19 of chapter one, I should probably warn you ahead of time. There's three things that happen on Mother's Day and when the leaves all come out, you know it's Mother's Day. When uh, the lake flies come out on Lake Winnebago, you know that it's Mother's Day. When I lose my voice, it's also on Mother's Day because of the allergies. I could not speak on Friday night because I cut the grass and I I called Paul Cameron and and, uh, Paul Mall and tried to talk. Paul's been mocking me ever since that with, <laughs> with his voice. <laughs> I just said, uh, I can't talk, so I'm not going to show up tomorrow. Uh, but my wife, she's got all this homopathic stuff. She says, Take this, she'll be all okay. So if I get through the message, um, be praising the Lord this morning. Okay, there's, there's just just in case. Key verse, chapter 1, verse 19. For the entire book, Divides the book of Revelation into three sections. John's on the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And verse 19, Jesus tells him, because he has just appeared to him, to write the things that he has seen. That's the first division of the book, chapter one. What did he see? This vision of Jesus Christ. Then he said, write the things which are, that's present tense, and that is going to entail the second part of the book where we find ourselves this morning, the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, We're still living in that time period now because the church is still here. And then the third division of the book, and then write the things which will take place after this. Question is, after what? After the church age. We enter into this period of time. Um, It has many different names, Daniel's 70th week, Uh, the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the indignation, many different references and names to this 70-year period of time that make up most of the book of Revelation. So there's your division. Chapter 1, the things he's seen. Chapter 2 and 3 is the second division. That's where we'll be this morning. And uh, then uh, we get into 4 and 5. We find the church in heaven. And then beginning with chapter 6, verse 1, the rider on the white horse, which is the Antichrist. We're tying Daniel together with the book. And um, if you're here on Wednesday, you can see just the, the similarities, how they're knit together so um, uh, correctly. So this morning, let's go back to our text. This is the shortest of, of the letters, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who is dead and came to life I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews that are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Now he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This morning, we will look at three different perspectives of dealing with death. Uh, That's what I've entitled this this morning, even though... The bulletin might say dealing with dying. Actually, I prefer the title, Dealing with Death. And what I'd like to do is look at it from three different perspectives. Um, the first perspective is what does God have to say about it and what is the scripture's perspective when it comes to the area of dying or death. Secondly, in verse 10, we'll notice that Satan is directly involved. So we're going to get Satan's perspective on dealing with death. And then the third one will be man's perspective of death, both for the saved and of the lost. Um, I am going to name names this morning as we expose three false teachings that have crept into the church. Chris mentioned one of them the prosperity doctrine. But I also want to deal with the doctrine of annihilationism. And I'll explain that when we get to it. And then the third one, universalism. These are doctrines that have crept into the church today. We're going to look at each one of them individually. But I want to do a little background to this particular church. And um, so bear with me as I read a couple paragraphs of the Church of Smyrna And as I do, I'm going to put something on the screen right now, a map of uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's the modern city of Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R. And it's built upon the ancient city of Smyrna. Now, I've been there, and it is a, a very beautiful cosmopolitan city today. But let me just give you a little background to this particular church. I'll be showing you another one because what's also interesting to me, there's a lot of people in that city right now that are suffering. And as long as I brought that much of it up, go ahead, put up the other picture. This is, this is recent. And, and these are refugees that were on their way to Europe and they got stranded in Izmir. And so they're sleeping outside in um, quarantine camps And I find it interesting they weren't able to get into Europe. Uh, They're Syrians. Uh, Assad is after them. You know, he killed many of his people. So these are people who are trying to escape Syria, and they got stuck in Turkey under Erdogan. And um, there are many more graphic pictures that I decided not to put up that just show the suffering to this day in the ancient city of Smyrna. And it's just amazing to me after all these centuries that um, we still have it. This comes from the Guardian. It's a lengthy article that describes the suffering that they're going through. All right, Smyrna is the martyred martyr's church. The church that suffered martyrdom for Christ, the word Smyrna means myrrh and carries the meaning of suffering. Uh, the city of Smyrna is still in existence to our day It has a Turkish name, Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, which may lead you astray, but it is the same city. It has been continually inhabited from the time it was founded. I have been there, like I said earlier. In fact, um, when staying in Izmir, uh, we visited the sites of the early church in that area. Uh, They have a completely, they don't like Christians. So when we're driving around on our bus, the bus driver was giving his interpretation from an Islamic pers- perspective of what the seven churches really were all about. Uh, when I could handle it no more, I took the microphone away from him and said everything he said is a lie and this is, now I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> he didn't like it, but I didn't care. It's a commercial city. There are those who have told us that Izmir will soon be larger than Istanbul. It will certainly be a larger commercial center. Uh, They have a tremendous population there. Smyrna was one of the loveliest cities of Asia. It was called a flower or an ornament, and it has been called the crown of all Asia. The Acropolis is located on Mount Pegasus, in fact, the early church that goes back about 2,000 years, a Hittite city at the time, was built around the slope of Mount Pegasus. Later, Alexander the Great had a great deal to do with building it into the beautiful city that it has become. Uh, there were wide boulevards along the slopes of Mount Pegasus. Smyrna was called the Crown City because the Acropolis was encircled with flowers, hedge, myrtle trees. The city was adorned with noble buildings, beautiful temples, a temple of Zeus, a temple to Diana, a temple to Aphrodite, a temple to Apollo. Smyrna had a theater um, and an odium, that is a musical center. It was the house of music. It also had a stadium. And it was at that stadium that Polycarp, the bishop, now I want you to remember this because I'm going to come back to him later, uh, the bishop of Smyrna and a student of the apostle John. So the one who's writing the book, John, actually tutored a man whose name was Polycarp who was the bishop of Smyrna and I'm going to be reading about his martyrdom from Fox's Book of Martyrs a little bit later on in the study. Um. And he was martyred alive in 155 A.D. In Christian literature, Smyrna means suffering. The Lord Jesus, in his letter addressed to the church there, said that he knew their suffering and their poverty. He had no word of condemnation for them or the Church of Philadelphia Uh, They were the churches that had no words of condemnation from him. And it's interesting that these two cities, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the only two which uh, had continual existence. Their lampstand has really never been removed, but there are few Christians in Izmir. Although they are undercover, uh, uh, we have made indirect contact with them and have been there. Actually, ran into another Calvary Chapel pastor at the hotel we were we were staying at. Uh, they do, they do not come out because Christians are persecuted even to this day in in Turkey. At Ephesus, as Ephesus represents the um, the apostles' age church, which would have been when the apostles up to about one hundred A.D. Um, here was Smyrna. Uh, it represents a period of time, and I'm going to put that church on the, the seven churches up on the screen at this time, and you can see the second one there is Smyrna, and the time frame in there it says from 100 to 313 AD, and it was during this period of time, of course, um, Paul being in Rome led many to Christ, and In that period of time, from about 64, when Paul was killed, um, to 313, seven million people became Christians. Now, Fox's Book of Martyrs records that five million of them were martyred. So, from 64 AD, starting, matter of fact, I'm going to put the the names of the different Roman emperors uh, up on the screen at this time. And you see them, I can't see them all here right now. Uh, Nero, Domitian, um, Trajan, Marcus, Aurelius, Severus, Maximus, Dicus, Phallion, Rudian, and, and the bottom one there. Well, something happened, and why it came to an abrupt end. And that is, whether it was genuine or a political move, on, um, Constantine seen this cross in the sky or so he says he could have been genuinely saved I don't know it could have been a political move but he now made Rome the Roman Empire Christian and everybody was forced to be baptized and the persecution came to an end so that's why we sort of categorize these and this is a very interesting period of time uh, Paul was beheaded under Nero in 64 to 68 during that period of time um, Let's go back. To, well, let's go back to our text uh, and look at the beginning of it with that much of an introduction to the angel of the church, which probably was the pastor of the church in Smyrna, right? And then he gives his title. These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. It appears that the title that Jesus picks when he's addressing a particular church is to identify with that particular church. Now this was a martyred church under great persecution. So the title that he uses for himself is I am the first and the last who became dead and alive, has a real message for martyrs. His experience with death identified him with the five million who were martyred during this period according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Five million believers died for Christ during this period. Christ was and has triumphed over death and can save to the uttermost those who are enduring persecution and martyrdom. And he now goes on and has and wants to address uh, this particular um, church in verses nine through 11. Remember, these two churches with Philadelphia, nothing bad is said. These seven things this church which the Lord commends in verses nine through 11. I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. They were poor, but you are rich. Also, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews that are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Don't fear any of those things which are about to suffer. Indeed the devil, so now we have spiritual warfare, which I will address as we get into this, Satan's perspective on dealing with death. Indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested uh, and you may have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Let's begin this morning by dealing with the biblical or God's perspective for us as we're dealing with death. And to start with, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Philippians. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And the Lord's perspective and Paul's perspective on death. Let's pick it up in verse 19, Philippians chapter 1. For I know this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and a supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ was magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is is gain. And now we have the first perspective. It's better to die than it is to live. Well, we usually don't think that way, but Paul does. And it's a biblical perspective. For me to live is Christ. And if I die, all the better. For I, in verse 22, for if I live in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I can't tell because I'm hard-pressed. I'm torn over this issue, staying here or going home. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, notice, which is far better. How's a good place for an amen right there? Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul is going to be used greatly during this period of time before he's executed. So he, see the, he sees it's important for him to be there. But he said, if I could choose, <laughs> hands down, I want to go home. So as we look at this one, another perspective from the Psalms, if you're taking note, it's Psalm 116, verse 15. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So, the Lord's perspective is that it's a precious thing when one of his own um, comes home. Now, if you go back to the um, book of Revelation 2, I got 9a and 9b because I want to address tribulation and poverty in two different sections. First of all, the reality that they were hated um, during this period of time. Um, there were snitchers that would tell where the Christians were hiding. I've had the privilege of being in Rome and being in the catacombs. Uh, my memories of Rome, that's what stick, sticks out to me the most when we were there. But tribulation, we need to have God's perspective in these times about difficulty and tribulation. So again, I'm quoting from the Gospel of John right now, and then 1 John. John 16:33. These things I have spoken unto you, that you may have peace in the world, uh, that uh, to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And so we're, we're told straight out, And this is something that I tried to get across to a new believer. That when you're born again, now you have two natures. You have one that wants the things of this life, the flesh. And then you have one, the Holy Spirit living in you, that wants the things of the Spirit. And it says they're contrary to one another. What does that mean? That means that they fight each other 24-7, each demanding its will. That's why the Apostle Paul says we need to die daily. What do you mean die? Well, die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow the Lord. Some days I do that, some days I don't. And um, that's the nature of the, of the flesh. To tell people when they're born again, and we'll get into the false teachings here in just a bit as it pertains to it, that, you know, give your life to the Lord and man, you got it made in shade now life's gonna be a breeze. (laughs) I tell him just the opposite. I take him to the parable of the sower. And I said, you've just had the seed of the word of God planted in you. You received it. Now let me tell you what's gonna happen next. The Bible says then comes the devil. And he's gonna try to take that out of your heart lest you should believe and be saved. So what happens as soon as, uh, I was up this morning it's that time of year where the Canadian geese, we had three different parents with three different sizes of their, their little Canadian geese. Some were real small, some were a little bit bigger, and the third group was somewhere in between. But uh, we have um, hawk and eagle also in the same territory. And they're under, because they're young and uh, easy, easy prey, um, they're vulnerable. And that's true for the baby believer. So, what, so what, how do you take care of a baby believer? Well, 1 Peter 2.2 says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word so that you can grow. You feed a baby milk until they're grown up and they can handle it. But in the meantime, they're vulnerable. And so it is spiritually too. Um, you get saved and the guys at work don't like it. Your wife doesn't like it. Your husband doesn't like it. Ultimatums can be made. you got a choice to make here, buddy. If you think I'm giving up my own life just because you became a Jesus freak, you got another, You got another thought coming. And you have to make that decision. And a lot of times it causes division. Well, Jesus doesn't want division. What did he say about that? Don't think I've come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword to cause division, a mother against his daughter, a father against his son, family members against each other, all because of the Bible. And yet, um, again, unless you have a biblical perspective of that truth, if, if you know that's what the Bible teaches, okay, I can handle that. I got a choice to make here. And the most loving choice you can make is put Jesus first above your wife, above your kids, above your job, another place for an amen. But let's face it, that's not easy to do, especially when when you're in that young place. Let's move on to the poverty, 9B. I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. Um, Oh, back to the tribulation. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, John 15, now verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. That's what the word church means, called out ones. Therefore, the world hates you. Do not marvel, 1 John three thirteen, my brethren, if the world hates you. These emperors hated Christians because Caesar was God. And they were saying Jesus was God and they would not bow the knee to Caesar. We saw a picture of that in Daniel chapter three on Wednesday night. Nebuchadnezzar makes his statue. And when the music plays, everybody bows down and worships or they die. 120 provinces. Everybody falls down and we have these three Jewish guys, they stick it out like Thor's thumbs because they wouldn't bow. Why? We went to Exodus 20. Thou shall not make any image, nor shall you bow down to any other God but the Lord your God. So they had a choice to make. And they were hated because of it and um, were thrown into fi- fiery furnaces because of it. All right. Um, example, probably the best one, turn to 2 Corinthians 11. Talk about, if you think you're having a hard day, Second. Um, Corinthians chapter 11. Let's just look a little bit of Paul's experience. I'm picking it up in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul's sufferings. Verse 23 Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes, above measure, in prison, more frequently and deaths often. From from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. When they scourged Jesus, it was 40 stripes minus one. You ever wonder why it's a minus one? Because for a Roman, they had to count. They had to count the, the lashes. And you better not have 41, because then you'd get in trouble. So they would go up to 39 And just in case (laughs) they didn't do 41, that's why they had the 40 minus 1. Well, this happened to Paul five times. And a lot of people will simply die from the scourging. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, perils of robber, perils of my own countrymen. Perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, and besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. I mean, Paul's routine was going to town, find a synagogue, begin to preach, get thrown in jail, beat up, and then he'd go on to the next town. And that's pretty much the book, book of Acts. So as we look at a biblical, bi- biblical perspective, um, we got it pretty cushy here in America. I see that tide turning, as you all do. And um, for churches that today that um, refuse to compromise uh, with the scriptures, or being honest with what's going to happen to you if you really become a Christian, well, here's a litmus test right here. Look at Paul 's life. And um, he goes on to say, in Philippians, now Paul is writing to Philippians three verse 10, "Why? Why is he identifying with suffering? He says, "Because I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Now we're enjoying fellowship with one another, and that's great. Paul's identifying with it, what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to identify with the suffering that Jesus went through, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. All right, now we can go back to uh, the Church of Smyrna. That was 9a with the tribulation, Now I want to talk about poverty. But with the poverty, it's, um, he says, but you're really rich. I'll tell you where he got that from. James in chapter two, verse five, if you're taking notes, he said, listen, my beloved brethren, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? And some of the prosperity teachers that I'm gonna name names about this morning, one of them said if Jesus was alive today, he'd be driving a Ferrari. And um, just totally absurd, crazy stuff. But when you look at the scriptures, uh, this is what the Lord had to say about himself. Matthew 8, 20. Jesus said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You ever wonder why, when they were accusing him of paying, not paying his taxes? And he says, well, give me a coin. Why did, why did he ask for a coin? I don't think he had one. <laughs> he says, whose picture on it? Uh, Caesar, well, and give the Caesars what Caesars, and give the gods what, what's God. And then there was a time, um, they were after Peter, and he goes, Lord, they're after us, They want us to pay taxes, I said, no money. Tell you what, Peter, I want you to go fishing, and when you catch a fish, the fish that you pull in, he's gonna have a piece of money in his mouth, take it, and go pay our taxes, plural. It wouldn't be great to have the Lord around on tax day. <laughs> What's your point, Dwight? The, the, the Lord had no place to lay his head. The idea of the, the prosperity doctrine and its foolishness when you compare it to the one we're supposed to be, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So my first sidetrack in exposing these guys, I want to lay a biblical foundation by having me turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. The first couple of verses are dealing with don't compromise doctrine. And he says if there are, if there are those who do contradict it, he says in verse three, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, then he's proud, doesn't know nothing. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments, interesting, in light of current events, over words for which come envy, strife, uh, reviling, evil, suspicious, using wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. Now, catch this who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, when you become a Christian, it's a way to um, advance and prosper financially. What does Paul t- tell Timothy to do? From such withdraw yourself so here what Chris was talking about earlier we have to address what the problem is the problem is is there's people out there that suppose that being a Christian is a means of making more money Paul's instruction withdraw yourself from them well again I'll, I'll bring up what Chris said is it proper to name names how can I warn you about who to look out for unless I name names the answer is, we can't. So this this list is not complete. I'm gonna put a picture on a screen of some of the more well-known ones, and I'm gonna name names this morning. Uh, this is called the prosperity doctrine. Uh, the prosperity doctrine, in a nutshell, is God wants you to be rich and wealthy and healthy. And I like Chris's tongue-in-cheek comment that uh, why do these guys die? <laughs> so um, here's a picture of them. You can see most of them. Um, uh, Benny Hinn, Joel Olsteen. I'll come back to him in a bit, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, and one of the things that Chris commented is as one dies, there could be another one who picks it up and carries it on. Well, Kenneth Hagen was the one who started it, but Kenneth Copeland picked up the banner after him. Um, Marilyn Hickey out in Colorado, Todd Bentley, uh, Paul White, Sephiro Dollar, John Hagee, Robert Tilton, Paul Crouch, Morris Cirillo. Morris Cirillo Cirillo, um, had uh, an $8 million jet that he needed to get around so he could do ministry. And one of the guys that worked out at, um, um, at the airport with Gulfstream actually was responsible for putting up the plaque and the names of the people who contributed to this $8 million, if they would contribute a certain amount, then they would get their name in Morris Surreal's jet and it would be a plaque that was up there. And then, of course, there's Fred Price. Joel Osteen has the largest church in the country, roughly almost 50,000 people attend there down in Houston, and he has, in his own personal wealth, I googled this, $50 million in his bank account. And the Lord didn't have a place to lay his head. What is the prosperity gospel? Well, um, it's hard when, when Judy and I are spending time in Arizona because they have a lot of Christian programming. And nine out of 10 of the programs that are on there are the prosperity teachers because they can afford to go on. Did I mention Paul Crouch? I might have missed him. And, um, and, and there's others that, that have not been mentioned here. And again, in the prosperity gospel, also known as a word of faith movement, uh, there's power in your words, so make sure you don't say anything negative. Um, at the word faith movement, the belief is told to use God whereas the truth of the biblical Christianity is just the opposite. God uses a believer. See, you use God. You have power in your words. So don't ever say anything negative. Um, it's crazy, of course, anybody's got common sense. And mo- nine out of 10 people can pick these charlatans out and we, we wonder why people um, are turned off or despised. Christianity today they, they see right through the sham and um, so the first doctrine that I want to expose goes completely against the church of Smyrna what were they they were poor but who else was poor our Lord foxes have holes birds have nests I don't have any place to lay my head and uh, we're to have the mind of Christ and not Again, the reason people are duped, and again, Chris made a good point of this, is they simply don't have the biblical perspective of what the Bible teaches on on this particular issue. All right, back to Smyrna. Um, We'll go from God's perspective to Satan's perspective. Satan's perspective on dealing with death. Verse 10 tells us, Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil, all right, we have the devil involved here, is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. Don't even worry about dying. Just be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Now, Jesus said to Peter, who was the spokesman for the, I believe, for the disciples? He said, Peter, come over. I got to tell you something. And he says, Satan has asked for you because he wants to sift you like wheat. But then he says, But don't worry about it because I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. So there's going to be spiritual warfare. And if you're vocal about the Lord Jesus Christ, you got a target on your back can you give me an amen on that one if you're vocal about your faith then you become a target as we're going to see in just a minute so peter was an outspoken disciple for the lord and the lord says you've been targeted by satan he wants to take you out pete but don't worry i've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail John 10.10, 10, if you're taking notes, says the thief or the devil does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's his perspective on dealing with death. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. John 8.44, the Lord is arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he tells them, you're of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, he told the first lie ever told, "Yes, you shall not surely die." That was the first lie. He's the father of lies. Turn with me to book to the book of Job in the old testament when i tell people today that talk about spiritual warfare where the devil is i tell them he's in heaven we know that because of revelation 12 where he accuses you and he accuses me day and night until he's cast out as we look at job chapter one and chapter two where's the devil he's in heaven and I'll I'll just go over chapter one without reading it, basically says that Job was a righteous man, wealthy, seven sons, three daughters, and that's the earthly perspective in verses one through five. Uh, but then in verse six it says, now when the sons of God came, now in the Hebrew here it is definitely a reference to angels, and I think it, settles the argument in Genesis 6 when it talks about the sons of God it is the same wording in the Hebrew when the sons of God interacted with women on earth I do take the view that they were angelic beings that had this capacity because the offspring was not natural there were giants in the land after that men of renown so it's the same wording here and these are angels but Satan was among them so the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he gets up, prays for his kids every single morning. He's a righteous man. People come and seek counsel from him. And um, uh, he says, yeah, I've seen him. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been walking back and forth over the face of the earth. Well, I haven't seen Job. And, yeah, and he says, yeah, well, no wonder. Look how you blessed him. No wonder, take away his stuff and you'll see what he's really made of. And the Lord gives him permission in verse 12. He says, you have the power, send your power to do so. But I want to point out here the sovereignty of God. This could only happen because the Lord gave the green light for him to do it. He's going to give Job a test. And Satan challenged the test much in the same way that I think he did it with Peter, Simon Peter. And so we find That um, this is a continuing, all these events happen in one day. All of his wealth, all of his possessions, his seven sons and three daughters, they're killed. And we read that when he got this report in verse 20, Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped God. Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Talk about keeping things in perspective. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this Job did not sin nor charge God wrongly. You know there's people who are mad at God because they've lost a loved one or something bad has happened in their life and they don't realize that there's a real spiritual warfare going on For you and your soul and Job's perspective was I came into this world naked I'm going to go out naked praise the Lord okay that's round one round two we're just going to read the first nine verses and then I'll comment on it again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord and the Lord said to Satan from where do you come? So Satan answered and said well from going to and fro on the face of the earth from walking back and forth and the Lord said to Satan well have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless, upright man. One who fears God shuns evil and he still holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered, and the Lord said to him, and this is the reason I came back here. Satan's perspective on dealing with death, and we are told not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Good place for an amen. So what is his device? It's right here. This is his thinking. Skin for skin. I got it underlined. Skin for sin Skin for sin, skin for skin. (laughs) I might have got it right the first two times, I'm not sure. All, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. He has been observing man's psyche for 6,000 years. And one thing that he learned is when man gets in a life or death situation, and he's not saved, then he'll do whatever it takes to get out of it. Skin for skin. In other words, the fear of death, it's one of his devices that he uses. I I know man's character and his nature, and if if it's one thing that I know about them is I can shake them up and make them fearful pretty easy. Let Let them think they might die. Ooh, that's relevant. Just look at the fear that's in the world today over the coronavirus. It has trumped up, well, boy, is that a play on words. (laughs) It's natural. I, I say it's a spiritual gift, but it's really not. But I thank the Lord for our president. We need to be praying for him right now. He said, enough of you democratic governors. Our churches are opening, and if you don't do it, I'm gonna do it. Amen to that, you can clap to that. And as, by the way, it's good to see so many of you out today. And we were packed out for Ben's prayer yesterday. And um, uh, But he understands from Satan's perspective, all you have to do is get people fearful enough. And the guys commented, one of them came in and he didn't know what to expect when we were wearing masks, where we're gonna have uh, uh, chairs six feet apart, and here we are sitting around just joining one another. Really didn't give a, a, a second thought. And if you really do your homework on this, and again, one thing I, I mentioned um, that I wanna mention again, is to do your own homework on this and come up with your own conclusions. But I, Dory mentioned it because I said, you guys really need to check out Robert Kennedy Jr right now he is the son of bobby kennedy and he is the nephew of jfk he's a liberal democrat but you'd never know it they hate him because he's pulling the curtain back on what's really going on with this pandemic you're only getting part of the news but if your name is robert kennedy jr that carries a little clout in the united states of america i called it the end of the innocence when JFK died. You know where you were? I knew where I was. And there's probably reasons that our own president today could be in the same sort of condition where people really want to take him out too. Boy, I'm getting sidetracked here. (laughs) But just Google it. If you want to know about this virus and the plan that's coming up for the fall, he's, he's squealing, let's just put it this way, in the most positive sense of the word. And um, I think we need to pray for the man. I have a lot of respect for him. So, back to um, um, Job, and um, his perspective is to bring fear, because man fears death, unless you have the biblical perspective, when Paul says, oh death, where's your sting? Oh grave, where's your victory? And um, let's turn with that to 2 Corinthians five, and get Paul's perspective on what we just read. The true believer should respond to to dealing with death like Paul. In Second Corinthians chapter five, if we're Bible believing Christians and believe that the Bible is an errant without error, and I do. We read in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5, for we know, look at the certainty, for we know that if our earthly house's tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, that's this body, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us a spirit as a guarantee. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home In this body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you detect any fear in this man's voice at all? No, he's saying, bring it on. I'm groaning in this body. I want a new one. I've chosen at this time to read who was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was discipled by John. His name is Polycarp, and I'm reading from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this is a couple paragraphs long, so he's an old man at this time. An elderly man in his 80s sat at a table eating dinner. Polycarp knew his life was in danger. A group of Christians had just been executed in the area on account of their faith. But Polycarp refused to leave Rome. The Romans were executing any self-proclaimed Christian, and pagans were betraying those they knew to be Christians. After the recent executions, a crowd in the arena had chanted for Polycarp's death. A renowned follower of Christ and bishop of Smyrna Polycarp had become a Christian under the tutelage of John the Apostle. Recently, the Roman protocol had been looking for him for days. After arresting and torturing one of Polycarp's servants, they finally learned that he was where he was staying. And the soldiers came into the house, but instead of fleeing, Polycarp calmly stated, Lord's will be done. Polycarp asked that food be brought for the soldiers and he requested an hour for prayer. Amazed by Polycarp's fearlessness, especially for a man in his age, the hardened Roman soldiers granted his request. He prayed for two hours. For all the Christians he knew and for the universal church and the soldiers led him. As Polycarp entered the stadium, several Christians uh, present heard a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp. And act like a man. Because of his age, the, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp a final chance to live. He just had to swear by Caesar and say, Take away the atheist. At that time, Christians were called atheists for refusing to worship the Greek and Roman gods. Polycarp looked at the roaring crowd, gestured to them, and proclaimed, Take away the atheists. The proconsul continued, Swear, and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly proclaimed, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him again, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, Since you vainly think that I will swear by the Fortune of Caesar, as you say, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I'll have wild beasts, they'll tear you apart unless you repent. Polycarp replied, call them. For we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse, but it is noble to turn from what is evil and what is righteous. Righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire, but he responded, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is soon quenched, and you're ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment, stored up for the ungodly? Why did you delay? Do what you want. Finally, the proconsul sent a herald to the middle of the stadium to announce that Polycarp had confessed he was a Christian. Crowd shouted uh, to send lions against Polycarp, but he refused. They, then they shouted for Polycarp to be burned. They moved him to the marketplace and prepared the pile of wood. Polycarp, undressed, climbed up, and they were going to put nails to him, but he says, leave me like this. He who gives me to endure the fire will also give me to remain to the pile without security of nails. So they did not nail him, but tied him up. Bravely, Polycarp prayed, and his shoulders prepared the wood. O Lord, God, almighty Father, of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of angels and power of creation, and all whole race of the righteous who live before you, I bless you that you consider me worthy this day and hour to receive a part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. For the resurrection to eternal life both of soul and of body and the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be welcomed before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice just as you previously prepared and made known and you fulfilled. And, and Let God be true because of this. For all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal heavenly high priest Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit both now and forever, amen. The Romans had threatened Polycarp with beasts and with fire, but nothing would make him turn against Christ. After his prayer, the men lit the pile, which sprang up quickly but even the fire wouldn't touch him as it formed an arch around Polycarp's body. The Romans didn't know what to do or to make of it. In the end, the Romans commanded an executioner to stab him, a great quantity of blood put out the remaining fire and Polycarp bled to death. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. If you've never picked up and have this as one of your books, This is one of those that you just simply have to have. So, um, with that, man's perspective, um, we looked at, uh, and we'll begin, this will be our last perspective we'll look at this morning, and that's the world at large and how they deal with death, their perception of death. Um, And I want to expose the false doctrine of annihilationism, well, there's a big $10 word, if there was one. Annihilationism. This is a belief, and it is a doctrine. Basically, according to um, Webster's Dictionary, annihilate, derived from the Latin word annihilera, means to reduce to nothing. In a Christian context, it may define annihilationism as the doctrine that after death, the unrighteous are not subject to eternal conscious torment, but will simply cease to exist. The overwhelming view of those who hold this doctrine is that this extinction will take place at some known time after death. Let me put it in my terms. You know, people, when you witness to them and you're talking about death, and they say, When you die, you die. That's it, it's over. And what they don't know is that's annihilationism. It's a false doctrine that needs to be exposed. The Bible clearly teaches just the opposite. And so for those that are under this uh, false security that um, it doesn't really matter because I'll just cease to be, no. The rich man and Lazarus, that was his attitude. He found out very quickly that when you die, it says he found himself in Hades, conscious, concerned about five of the brothers, but he was in torment. Um, the false doctrine, I'll switch gears quickly and deal with the last one, and that's universalism. How many of you have heard that terminology before? Universalism. Universalism is a belief that ultimate. Ultimately, everybody will be saved. How could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? And that's their mentality. Again, they don't have a biblical perspective. This is man's who's not saved uh, or or those who are saved. People like Rob Bell. He's uh, a universalist. He wrote the book Love Wins. There is no hell. Uh, William Paul Young made millions off his book called The Shack. And the whole book is about universalism. Um, No one should take the reality, well, ultimately, the idea here is that uh, everybody will be saved because God's a loving God. How could, um, I've lost a lot of friends over this doctrine, and um, one of them was Barry McGuire, uh, for only you guys over 60 don't know who I'm talking about right now. He wrote The Evil of Destruction. And um, Warren Smith called me and says, "What you're having Barry at one of your co- conferences? Um, he's a universalist. He says, I said, no, he's not. He says, yes, he is. And we went back and forth with that a couple times. He is "So call him and find out. And so I did. And um, I've known Barry McGuire since 1975 um, from Colorado was actually at his 40th birthday. And if he was 40 then in 75, you could do the math. <laughs> He's getting up there. So I said, Barry, I just gotta get, get this record straightened out here. I have a friend who says you're universalists and I know you're not, but I need to hear it from you. And he says, what's that? <laughs> I says, a universalist, Barry. It's the belief that everybody goes to heaven. Well, he says, of course I believe that. Uh -uh, I said, what? (laughs) It troubled me so much, we researched where did this creep in to his life? It turns out he was in a band in Canada with Brian McLaren at one time. And that's where that crept in. When Chris used the term creeping into the church, this is how it happens. And He says, Dwight, let me just tell you something. The only reason you don't get it is because you don't have any kids. (laughs) If you had one son or daughter, then you would understand no father would ever do that to a child. Now, as talented and famous as he is, musicians, if they have an Achilles heel, it is that their emotions get the best of them over doctrine many times. Who is the worship leader in heaven, by the way? Yeah, Lucifer. He was a worship leader in heaven. Eric, don't get too worried right now, wherever you're sitting. <laughs> but to those who have that man's perspective and they lean upon their own understanding and they don't have a biblical perspective, Matthew twenty-five, twenty-six, Jesus talked about the reality of hell more than anybody else. Uh, They will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Then they will suffer for all time in a state of conscious torment and pain. You think I like reading that? But it should give us incentive to be praying for our lost loved ones. We got one more point, and that's the promise to the church of Smyrna. It's only one verse. And this should put, what we're about to read will put to rest the false doctrine of universalism. So, back to, and we'll close with this. Verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, which raises a question, what in the world is the second death? You need to turn to Revelation chapter 20, picking it up in verse four through six. John says that I saw thrones in verse 4. They sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus, for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and did not receive the mark of the forehead on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. The rich man who died is still in hell to this day. He will be in hell all through the kingdom age. And um, then the dead were raised after the thousand years. Verse six, it says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Well, this was a promise given to the church of Smyrna. Over such, the second death has no power. So now we're tying in the promise that Jesus gave to the church of Smyrna, be an overcomer. Don't look back. Keep pressing on, and you won't be hurt by the second death. Uh, Over such, the second death will have no power, but you shall be priests of God, and you'll reign with him for a thousand years. Down to verse 11. Now, death and ha- now the thousand years has ended, and before we enter into eternity, there has to be the great white throne judgment. So, picking it up in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, if it's one thing I don't want to be judged by, is my works. I want grace and grace only. Good place for an amen. <laughs> by the things that were written in the books, what's being implied here? Everything you ever thought, if you're unsaved. Everything you ever did, everything you ever stole, every lie you ever told. It's all down. And you won't have any excuse. You'll be without excuse. then, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, that would be the rich man, delivered up the dead who were with them, and they were judged each according to their works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Then it says what? This is a second death. And I say so much for universalism, so much for annihilationism. The scripture clearly tells us here that the second death is a place that's going to be cast into the lake of fire, also known as outer darkness. And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I can't leave you on that heavy of a note on Memorial Day weekend because you're going to have an awful, uneasy lunch, okay? So let's end it with some good news and go to John chapter 11. And this will be the last verse we'll read. And somebody said, Dwight, you said that just one minute ago. Nope, this is it, just two verses. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He's talking to Martha. Lazarus, interestingly enough, is about to be raised from the dead. Only Mary and Martha don't know that yet. Martha's upset. She said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. So she's angry. So in response, the Lord tells us this in verse 25. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I'm going to stop just for a second and ask a question. When Job had all these things happen to him, and he still didn't sin, The rest of the book of Job, by the time you get to chapter 14, he's had a lot of time to think. And this is what Job 14 verse four says. The question is, if a man dies, will he live again? No answers to that question until John 11 verse 25 and 26. It answers Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? Jesus' answer is, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you know that everyone here is going to live forever? Do you know that everybody in the whole world that has always been is going to live forever? That's not the issue. The issue is, where are you going to live forever? The Bible teaches both. And Jesus is saying he's the only way. And so he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? He just says, I'm telling you that if you believe in me, you will never die. question now is personal between you and your God and you watching live stream. Do you believe this? If you believe it, then you have the hope of Second Corinthians 5 in a new body, reigning with Jesus Christ through the millennium and throughout all eternity. And uh, that should bring um, peace and hope in a world right now that has neither. It's fearful. But they're watching you, church. (laughs) They're watching you, how you're handling all this. And let them, uh, may you be encouraged to have Paul's attitude that um, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning on this Memorial Day weekend as we remember those who have gone before us. We are all thinking of people right now, some of us with heavy hearts because we have loved ones that aren't saved and we're praying for them. So once again, Lord, as we close, our prayer is that you will do whatever it takes to break them, to bring them to a place of repentance because of the reality of heaven and hell. Every human being has a spirit and a soul. It will be eternal. And the destiny is left up to the individual because you gave us a free will. And we pray for, even right now, Lord, as we're closing, there's people that are thinking of loved ones. See that person's heart. See that person's prayer. And we stand in agreement, Lord, on this um, Memorial Day weekend that you would deal with them and bring them into a saving relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Gonna have an awful, uneasy lunch, okay? So let's end it with some good news and go to John chapter 11. And this will be the last verse we'll read. And somebody said, Dwight, you said that just one minute ago. <laughs> nope, this is it, just two verses. John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He's talking to Martha. Lazarus, interesting enough, is about to be raised from the dead. Only Mary and Martha don't know that yet. Martha's upset. She said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. So she's angry. So in response, the Lord tells her this in verse 25. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I'm going to stop just for a second and ask a question. When Job had all these things happen to him and he still didn't sin, the rest of the book of Job, by the time you get to chapter 14, he's had a lot of time to think. And this is what Job 14, verse 4 says The question is if a man dies, will he live again? No answers to that question until John 11, verse 25 and 26. It answers Job's question. If a man dies, will he live again? Jesus' answer is whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you know that everyone here is going to live forever? Do you know that everybody in the whole world that has always been is going to live forever. That's not the issue. The issue is, where are you going to live forever? The Bible teaches both. And Jesus is saying he's the only way. And so he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? He just says, I'm telling you that if you believe in me, you will never die. Question now is personal between you and your God, and you watching live stream you believe this if you believe it then you have the hope of second corinthians 5 in a new body reigning with jesus christ through the millennium and throughout all eternity and uh that should bring um peace and hope in a world right now that has neither it's fearful but they're watching you church <laughs> they're watching you how you're handling all this And let them, uh, may you be encouraged to have Paul's attitude that um, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning on this Memorial Day weekend as we remember those who have gone before us. We are all thinking of people right now, some of us with heavy hearts because we have loved ones that aren't saved. And we're praying for them. So once again, Lord, as we close, our prayer is that you will do whatever it takes to break them, to bring them to a place of repentance because of the reality of heaven and hell. Every human being has a spirit and a soul. It will be eternal. And the destinies is left up to the individual because you gave us a free will. And we pray for... Even right now, Lord, as we're closing, there's people that are thinking of loved ones. See that person's heart. See that person's prayer. And we stand in agreement, Lord, on this um, Memorial Day weekend that you would deal with them and bring them into a saving relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.